he made the 212th Mass fully mobile and capable of tracking along with the advancing force. In fact, at one point on the invasion of Iraq, the 212th Mash in the middle of the sandstorm with all its prime movers moving all of its equipment was leading the formations and had to be pulled over by combat MPs who said, sir, you're leading the tanks. We don't typically lead invasions with mashes. Can you let the tanks get in front of you? It was a great story. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome retired Army Lieutenant General Dr. Eric Schoomaker to Wardox. Dr. Schoomaker completed his internal medicine residency followed by fellowship training in hematology oncology at Duke University and also earned a PhD in human genetics from the University of Michigan. He received his MD degree at the University of Michigan and holds a master's in strategic studies from the U.S. Army War College. He has served in many positions in Army graduate medical education, including Director of Medical Education for the Office of the Surgeon General. He also was the Command Surgeon for the 5th Corps, as well as the U.S. Army Forces Command Surgeon. General Schoomaker has commanded multiple military treatment facilities, as well as being the Commander of the Army Research and Material Command and the 30th Medical Brigade in Germany. Ultimately, he served as the 42nd Surgeon General of the Army. You can read his full bio at wardockspodcast.com. This is part two of our Wardox interview. If you haven't already, we hope you get a chance to listen to part one of this conversation available on Wardox podcast. Following the war college, you had risen to this strategic level and you were then stationed in Germany as the fifth corps surgeon and commander of the 30th medical brigade in Germany. Tell us where you were on 9-11, what the circumstances were and then how the Army changed for you, particularly military medicine, from that point forward? Well, it's hard to put people's heads to where we were during the Cold War and following. But you remember, in during the Cold War, while the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact were still a great threat to Central Europe, we had, and following World War II, we had sent a very large army, especially, but Air Force as well, and Navy, into Europe to send the very clear message to um, the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union that we were there to stay. In fact, we were so committed to stay that, we're, that our families were there with us. And we had garrisons and whole populations. And if you attacked through the folding gap, even used nuclear or chemical weapons, we were gonna be there to fight you and to resist you. And in many respects, that was still some of the thinking that was going on even by the end of the 20th century. The first Gulf War did not help that in the sense that although that battle did not take place, that war did not take place in Central Europe, Saddam essentially <laughs> tried the same thing in the deserts of the Mideast. And it perpetuated a sense that warfare to the uninitiated looked very much like it looked in World War II, where large battle formations in the desert or elsewhere formed. And 
it, it was really through the brilliance of the planners in the first Gulf War that re recognized that, wait a minute, why go after the point of the spear when you can incapacitate the force by taking out its command and control and its ability to communicate on the battlefield, which is how they, they really went after that war and had subsequently. We in Europe at the time were still focused on what the European force was going to do. It was still supporting NATO, but the Fifth Corps at the time was targeted to Korea. We were the force that was going to mobilize and assist in a potential invasion of Korea. And that was our war plan. At the time of 9-11, I was the Fifth Corps surgeon advising the three-star commanding general at the time, Scott Wallace, who went on to become a four-star and trade-off commander, but he led the invasion of Iraq, as you may recall, in the Fifth Corps. He had gathered at the Heidelberg Officers Club in a large conference center his entire command and control for the Fifth Corps, his two division commanders, two-star generals, his staff, including his separate brigade commanders like the 30th Med Brigade and his artillery brigade commander and others, engineering, intelligence, signal. And we were doing basically a command exercise about our battle plans in Korea. It was the middle of the day over there because we were five hours ahead, six hours ahead. And there were TVs everywhere within the, the um, conference area. And at one point in this very large conference, it probably brought 300 people together, including all the command and control for the Corps, for the divisions, and for the separate brigades. Someone ran in and said, a plane just ran into the World Trade Center. And they turned on all these TVs, and everybody got quiet. And we watched the consequences of the first plane, then the second plane, then we heard about the Pentagon. After about watching for, for about an hour and a half or two hours, uh, General Wallace then stopped and said, look, ladies and gentlemen, our, our world has just changed. And I suspect, and he was on the phone as well, I suspect that we are going to have a different battle plan now. And I want you to go home. I want you to go back to your camps, posts, and stations. I want you to secure your formations to ensure that we aren't now the second attack or the third attack. And for a brigade like mine, I had a brigade of about 3,000, 4,000 soldiers. I had two combat support hospitals, most of the dentists, all of the veterinarians, a medical logistics battalion, and a, and a medical evacuation battalion, as well as my brigade headquarters. Um, and uh, we were distributed in, in so many camps, posts, and stations across Germany and in the northern Italy. So we had to start protecting our own force, issuing ammunition, getting people at the gates, doing all the things that you were doing here in Conus as well. And the next time we got together, sure enough, our battle plan was the invasion of Iraq and the Fifth Corps was gonna lead that. So as a medical brigade commander, we started to accelerate what we had talked about in the futures project in the 90s, which was how modular are we? How mobile are we? Can we actually move a combat support hospital? We don't have the prime movers for a combat support hospital. We have maybe a third or a quarter of all the trucks and vehicles that we need to move all this stuff. It would take us weeks to move a full up combat support hospital. 
but we still have the 212th mash. We had the last mash in the army. Let's make this fully modular. Let's make it fully mobile. And Ken Canestrati, who went on to become a senior commander in the, in the AMED and is now um, retired, but ran the TRICARE program for me when I was the Surgeon General, he made the 212th mash fully mobile and capable of tracking along with the advancing force. In fact, at one point on the invasion of Iraq, the 212th MASH in the middle of the sandstorm with all its prime movers moving all of its equipment was leading the formations and had to be pulled over by combat MPs who said, sir, you're leading the tanks. We don't typically lead invasions with MASHs. (laughs) Can you let the tanks get in front of you? It was a great story about Ken Canestrini. And they set up in the desert. They operated 17 days without any assistance, protecting themselves and taking casualties uh, from then on. But that's what it did for us. It changed the mindset that we had been um, laboring under for 30, 40, 50 years into a much more mobile modular force that could respond, could operate split based. In fact, that's what we did for most of the time I was in the 30th Med Brigade. We operated split based. We split for, forward surgical teams. And we took 22 men, 24 men, surgical forward surgical teams. We split them in half and put them with special forces groups that were going out into West Africa to treat, to teach Nigerian and Guyanian and Senegalese peacekeepers for the civil war in Liberia, putting them in very austere environments, doubling up. We made a, a radiology tech, a laboratory tech, so that they could do both. We made a, a PM tech, a vet tech, so that they could do both. We made a family practitioner, a first assistant in the operating room, so they could do both. And we could then have the special forces support us in a very lean, very modular formation in very austere parts of West Africa. One of the things that we like to ask our guests who have been in strategic leadership positions is some of the leadership challenges that you've been uh, involved in. And one of the things that you know, people are aware of is in 2006-7-ish, Walter Reed was at the front pages of the Washington Post in a scandal with a neglect of patients. And a lot of things happened at that time, which I'm sure were some tough leadership challenges. I was wondering if you had any comments about that time. So I'll be as brief as I can, but the strategic view of this really goes back again to the first Gulf War. In the first Gulf War, if you can remember, we didn't have the ability to move casualties out of the area of conflict, out of the area of of responsibility, the AOR, in one fell swoop. So we were compelled to build the equivalent of a large medical footprint in Saudi Arabia, and, and then later to recreate it in Kuwait and other places. We had 20 to 40,000 beds of capacity in theater at that time, large semi-mobile hospitals, 256 bed hospitals and larger, and, and tapped into host nation hospitals in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and other places. In the interim between 92 and, and OIF, OEF, the Air Force went through an enormous transformation that I give great credit to P.K. Carlton and Bruce Green, who was my counterpart in the Air Force as Surgeon General 
when he was a staff officer, in converting airframes that, for strategic lift so that they could move the most critically ill people out of theater on their principal airframes using these palletized ICUs and, and other medical capabilities. Back in 92, you basically had to be able to walk onto a plane under your own power, or at least be escorted onto a plane with a little help and almost take your own medicines. By 2002, 2004, you could put the most critically ill patients on, a, on an airframe with one of those palletized ICUs and you could have them out of theater within hours. In fact, at Eisenhower and Walfarine, we were beginning to see people within three days, two and a half days of their wounding incident. They were still pouring sand out of their boots and were still dressed in their desert BDUs. That was an incredible transformation. And it allowed us then to run the entire OEF OIF operation with a very lean footprint of forward surgical teams and combat support hospitals in theater at the time, because you could count on the strategic lift to bring you out through launch tool. So what we worried about in the first Gulf War, gridlock in the desert from patients being over, overflowing because of what I described earlier was this very lethal battle that we were going to, we anticipated a quarter of the casualties in the first Gulf War if they were in tank warfare, we're going to have multi-system failure from kidney, pulmonary disease, and injury, shock, and terrible burns. We anticipated huge amounts of burns and possibly chemical. Uh, remember, Iraq won the war with Iran by the use of chemical weapons. And so we anticipated this was how they were going to respond in that first Gulf War. So we anticipated gridlock in the desert. That if we could get people out of theater as the Air Force enabled us to do by OIF, we then feared gridlock and launch tool. It could handle maybe a thousand patients in one day. But after that, in the first Gulf War, the top number of casualties that arrived in launch tool, uh, both non-battle injury as well as battle injury, was about uh, like 190 begotten one day. But you get much above the mid, you know, mid. 500s or so, and into a thousand, and now you got gridlock in Launchdale. But Launchdale got its act together and, and and really perfected the throughput. People were stabilized when they got the Launchdale at Ramstein and Launchdale, and then they were on the next plane out. And they may remain in Launchdale 24 hours, 36 hours, 48 hours, and now they're headed to the states. So where did gridlock occur? It occurred at Walter Reed. And when Jim Gilman, who was the commander of Walter Reed as a colonel, was then promoted to general and sent to Bamsey, he spent time and money sending people on his staff up to Walter Reed to convince them to send patients down to Bamsey. We have capacity. I was doing the same thing at Eisenhower. Send these patients to Eisenhower. Most of them come from the Southeast anyway. They're from Fort Campbell. They're from Fort Stewart. They're from Fort Benning. They want to be back in the South. Send them to Eisenhower. They wouldn't come. And so gridlock occurred at Walter Reed in a time when the model of healthcare delivery was a strict inpatient outpatient model without good fluidity between the two. 
at a time when we needed that kind of fluidity. And it was not prepared, unfortunately, structurally or otherwise, to handle what it was handling. So when the Walter Reed stories came out in the Washington Post, two reporters, Anne Hall and Dana Priest, seized upon probably the best metaphor for a crusty system, a moldy system, and that is found several soldiers in Building 18, uh, temporary billets across the street from Walter Reed, where we had about 85 ambulatory patients, almost 95% of whom had never been deployed, were, were National Guard or reservists who were injured in training or had psychological issues or like. And several of them had mold on their walls because of a leaky roof that we hadn't been able to fix. And that exploded it. It, it, was a, it was a metaphor for the kind of moldiness half, five years into this war of how the bureaucracy was not able to support the volume and the constancy of battle casualties. And that included the transition into the VA, which was a very moldy process at the time as well. So two general officers ended their career, George Waitman, who was the commander of uh, Walter Reed and the Holden North Atlantic, something that people uh, forget that he, not only was he watching Walter Reed, but he was watching about 15 other installations from, from West Point all the way down to Fort Bragg. And the Surgeon General, Kevin Kyle, was essentially sidelined. And I was at Medical Research and Material Command. I got a call from the Vice Chief of Staff at the Army who said, um, I want you to come and take command of Walter Reed. And I said, can you give me a week or two? And he said, no, <laughs> I want you here now. You're going to be interviewed by the new acting uh, Secretary of the Army because the new Secretary of Defense, uh, Bob Gates, has just fired the Secretary of the Army. And we have a new one acting, Pete Guerin. And he wants to meet you. And, and at four o'clock, we're going to go in front of the press and you're going to be announced as the new commander. It was a very tough time. I loved Wealth Reed. We all did. I mean, many of us who started our careers there and met my wife there have incredible fondness for the places, even as, as you all probably have for years. But, but it was very clear that there were problems that had to be solved, not the least of which is it had been bracked. And when you pass a base realignment and closure um, act, as they had in 2005, that was now taking effect in 2007, you're not allowed to invest money in the installation. You have to wait till a pipe bursts and then you patch it. And if your engineers say, sir, you've got steam pipes throughout this installation, it's a hundred years old. And I really ought to replace a hundred feet of this steam pipe because you're gonna have another couple of bursts. The law doesn't allow you to do that. The law only allows you to fix the, the, the thing that's broken. We didn't have maintenance on the campus for about six months. There were trees down on the campus, grass that hadn't been mowed because the workforce was leaving. They had no confidence that they were going to have jobs after the realignment when Belvoir and, and Bethesda absorbed the workforce. It was a disaster. And these people were working 24 hours a day, seven days a week in a model of healthcare delivery that was not adapted to what we needed to do in a 21st century war, such as we found ourselves. And not the least of the problems was once a casualty arrived at Walter Reed, their families came as well, quit their jobs, took their kids out of childcare and moved to Washington. 
and now had no place to live, no place to get support, had no transportation. It was it was a multi-domain disaster with very, very good people working very, very hard to try to solve problems that were beyond their we just released uh, an episode with Sergeant Major Del Valle, who he he had he actually gave a lot of stories about how when he became the command sergeant major of Walter Reed, he it sounds like along with you were able to really change the 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 perspective and the way that patients were cared for once they were there. But as you moved into the next phase of your career as the Army Surgeon General and the commanding general of the U.S. Army Medical Command. What were the most important issues you tackled during that time? What would you consider the biggest accomplishments of Army medicine as your tenure as the Surgeon General? Well, probably my biggest achievement personally was being able to attract and retain people like Rudy DeValier and my Sergeant Major, Althea Dixon, uh, Althea Green, Althea Dixon Green, who um, was my Command Sergeant Major from 2002 when I arrived at, at Eisenhower until I retired in 2012. Sergeant Major Dixon is, is an immigrant from the Caribbean, came to the United States when she was 17, joined the Army, was a medic, is one of the most talented human beings I've ever worked with or met. And I didn't know her before I was, she was assigned to me. That's the first one-star generals don't get any choice over their sergeant majors. Two-star generals get to advertise and select a sergeant major from a panel, three-star generals, surgeon generals get to just reach down and get whom you want. And every time I moved, there was no question that Sergeant Major Green and Dixon was the one for, for me. And, and when I got reassigned from Fort Detrick as the commanding general of the MRMC to Walter Reed, I didn't give her a choice. She was my backdoor neighbor at Fort Dietrich, and I just walked over and said, Sergeant Major, we're, we're heading uh, to Walter Reed. You and I are going to come, and you don't have any choice because I won't survive if I don't have you in my back pocket. I think we had the right people. We had the right teams. We had people like those that I described at Walter Reed that were willing to hang in there and do their jobs and, and, and adapt on the fly to even some of the, the terrible pressures and and, and criticism that they were receiving. I'm probably as proud of anything of what the AMED achieved, largely unassisted, but with the joint force during the wars to keep ahead of casualties and to change and to bend the curve of wartime-related death on the battlefield and the residual problems of psychological um, injury, TBI and the like. Did we solve those problems? No, we didn't. But I think we drew attention to them. We applied science whenever we could. I'm very proud that we always kept science at the center of our approaches to how we solve problems. And if we didn't have good science, we didn't succumb to the temptation or the seduction of a great idea that might distract us from something that would work or that would that would make someone rich, but wouldn't necessarily help people. And we confronted that numerous times with things like hyperbaric oxygen and a whole variety of, of, of uh, solutions that were thrown at us that, uh, quite frankly, we demonstrated were not the solutions that they thought they would be. I'm very proud that we always used good, sound science and, 
and very high standards of uh, replicability and empiric evidence before we change things. And we changed them for the good. I saw that over and over and over again. So after 2011, when you retired, you still maintained a lot of connective tissue with army medicine and military medicine, but you also joined the civilian workforce. What is something that the public should know about military medicine that you don't think it does know? Well, I hope that we've talked a lot about those things up until now. The resilience, innovation, and creativity, the sheer guts of of people who um, commit themselves, whether they're civilians or in uniform, to, to make a difference for the people that they've asked to be out there defending the country and taking enormous risks on their behalf. When I took the 30th Med Brigade, I described what my brigade looked like. It was what we call an echelon above division core level medical brigade. So it had the air evacuation capacity. At that time, we medics had all of the air evac. So I had 45 air ambulances in three different air ambulance companies. I had 40 ground ambulances. I had two combat support hospitals. Well, one MASH and one CASH and, and veterinarians and dentists and med log people. I didn't know much about medevac. I'm not a pilot. Quite honestly, the first time I flew in a helicopter was a UH-1 during my ROTC days at Indian Town Gap. I never wanted to get in a helicopter again after that experience. It was not something I found all that ennobling uh, until I got back into it as a senior officer. Now, I, I, I admit that if I was 17, 18 years old and someone had put me in a helicopter, I wouldn't have been a doctor. I'd be a helicopter pilot. I mean, it's just the most incredible experience I ever had flying around Europe, Africa, and Korea and helicopters. So when I took the brigade, I, I turned to people that I trusted and said, I got to learn more about these helicopters. They are the most costly thing I've got, and they're just of enormous importance to us. So at the time, Dennis Doyle, now Brigadier General, retired Dennis Doyle, was my battalion commander. He's a very accomplished helicopter pilot himself, a pilot. He took me up uh, to his brigade, to his battalion headquarters, and gave me a helicopter and a crew. And I spent a week with them and learned everything I could about a helicopter how much, how costly they are. Every time you have to go through phase maintenance on a 60 helicopter, it costs you $250,000 to rebuild that engine and, and to take its skin off and check all of its systems. And I got to spend time with the crew, the crew chief, the medic, the two pilots, command pilot, the instructor pilots, look at how they do things in process, how they maintain safety, how every time you get into a helicopter, just like when you go on a commercial jet, Crews who have thousands and thousands of hours are going through the checklist probably for the thousandth time. Even though they know every step of that checklist, they still pull the checklist out and they go through it step by step by step. Very safety conscious, very oriented to, to a disciplined approach. So at one point I turned, and this is a group at the time that had been in and out of the Balkans for about three or four years on almost continuous operations. One company would go down to the Balkans, the other company would come out. Another company would go and take, take their place after three or four months. And I was with a crew that had spent the last, I don't know, three, four months in the Balkans uh, during the Balkans war. And I turned to this 19 year old medic 
And I said to him, what's the most difficult thing you have to do when you're taking care of somebody? And I'm thinking to myself, hearing breath sounds, taking a blood pressure, getting a pulse. He misunderstood me. He thought I said, what's the most difficult thing you've done? And he said, I guess, sir, it would have to be one night. There were two, two groups, two factions in a small village during the war that got in a firefight. And, and, a, and a young girl was caught in the crossfire and she was gravely wounded. And we were called in to evacuate her. And we landed in a snowstorm at night. And both factions were there huddled over this girl, all armed. And I'm trying to stabilize her on the ground. I'm trying to keep people from walking into the rear rotor assembly and taking their head off. And I'm watching to make sure that nobody pulls a weapon. And I had to get this little girl to a point I could get her into the chopper. And Doug, I looked at him and I thought to myself, this guy's a 19-year-old medic. And he's doing things that I, with the most advanced degrees in medicine and clinical training out the wazoo, would probably crumble in having to do. Think about that. That's what America needs to understand about what our people can do. And it's not just the you, the you guys, vascular surgeon, uh, very accomplished uh, urologist. It's, it's right down to that last kid who, who's so capable and so serious about what they do. And I met those people over and over again, the wounded. I met a kid from an artillery company that was sent in Afghanistan, not, not firing his artillery weapons because they didn't need them, but he was doing route clearance and then, and then village clearance. And he walked in, they went into a, a hut or into a, um, a house a group of about five of them. And just as they got inside, he realized and several realized that this place had been booby-trapped just as one of the soldiers opened the refrigerator and the refrigerator had been booby-trapped and the thing went off and took off a bunch of limbs and severely injured a whole bunch of these kids, all dropped to the ground. This kid had his right arm broken, as I recall, and may have amputated his right foot or something. He puts a tourniquet on himself and then he crawls around the room and he puts something like seven tourniquets on these guys before the medics even got there. I mean, think about that. Think about the presence of mind to do that. I remember once escorting the assistant, the uh, undersecretary of the army down to a, a, a ceremony in, at Brook where the kid had lost his foot going into a Bradley to pull out a couple of his buddies uh, who were on fire. And, and he asked him, hey, you escaped the vehicle. You lost your foot when you went back inside and ended up being seriously injured, but you saved these other two guys. Why did you do that? And he said, well, sir, I'm, I'm a soldier. These are, my, these are my battle buddies. This is what we do. And he said, exactly. He said, you are one of the few groups who understand just part of your DNA to do what's right under those circumstances. And I don't think other people understand that. I just was dumbfounded by this, overwhelmed by it. And when I got out of uniform, I have to say, I just still had a lot of demons about what we owed people like this 
and so many others from prior wars, including my own dad, who you know, fought in three wars, and I'm convinced had many of the scars of those wars, especially Korea. Korea was a terrible, terrible war. And, and so I, I spent time at, at the Uniformed Services University working on those things, on leadership, and things that we've talked about before, about how do we train our leaders? How do we help them understand themselves first and foremost before they try to go out and and help others and, and create teams and the like. How, how do we uh, maintain the wonder that we should uh, for all the people that we're privileged to take care of, but at the same time, I have to stand in front of them as I did at Walter Reed and say, hey guys, we screwed up. It's not whether you fall down in this world, it's, it's how long you stay on the ground. And we've got to get ourselves up, uh, dust ourselves off and go back to solving this problem. When I was the chief of the medical corps and before I became a third general, because I did the chief of the medical corps job as all of us did as an additional duty when I was both at Eisenhower and then at MRMC. But I was raised on these stories. You know, I came out of Duke University. Every closet, every toilet is named after somebody down there. You go on rounds on Strudwick Ward and Osler Ward and, and Crawford Long Ward. And this is the old Duke Hospital. I don't think it's like this in the new one, but uh, the new one, which is about 30 years old now. But 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 we would be on 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 Long Ward or Osa Ward, and and our attending would say, "Is who was William Osler? Tell me about him. What did Crawford Long do?" You had to know these stories. And I was part of a um, I was part of a medical history society when I was a medical student and a graduate student and you know I studied Benjamin Rush and his role in the yellow fever epidemic of 1791 in Philadelphia and how he through not because he knew an effective treatment of yellow fever nobody did at that time but he had such so much confidence in himself that he kept order in what had what could have been great chaos and disorder I mean if you read the accounts of the plague in, in Athens in 600 or read A Distant Mirror by, by Barbara Tuckman, her, her story of the 14th century and the plague years, families, parents abandoned their children, monasteries were devastated overnight, literally, by, by a pneumonic plague. And, and the villagers would say, gosh, if the priests and the nuns could be killed by this plague, there is no God. And they became lawless and, and you know, uncontrollable. And the same was true in the yellow fever. I mean, martial law was imposed. Village, whole cities would be cut off. They wouldn't deliver mail to them. They would have armed guards on the roads into towns to keep whatever was causing the yellow fever out of the surrounding area. Those stories were a part of what I was raised with. And yet, when I got into the army, Walter Reed, we named wards 71, 68, <laughs> 53. I said, where are the, I mean, you guys are the, I once asked one of my residents, who was Walter Reed? The name, the hospital's named after him. And the guy said, I think he's the one who invented malaria. <laughs> he's the guy who invented malaria. I love that story. So when I became the chief of the medical corps, so we started inviting Bob Joy, who was a historian at, at, at USU, to come over every year and give a grand rounds on, on Walter Reed. Who, who was this guy? What did he do? And, and how did he change the world? Until Walter Reed found the vector for yellow fever that was just then extended with the help of the Brits who had 
applied the same logic to Ronald Ross in India to malaria, they then, they then controlled mosquitoes, both yellow fever and malaria, in Panama and built the Panama Canal and opened the, the, the United States to the world. The, the United States before the Spanish-American War and the defeat of yellow fever and malaria was a third-rate country. It became a world power because of the Panama Canal and the, and the defeat of tropical disease. We couldn't have fought in the Philippines had we not been able to do that. So I then, as the chief of the medical corps, put 14 names on the coin of the medical corps. I don't know if you have one of those. Goes back to John Warren, John Warren of the Warren brothers. His brother was a doctor, he was a doctor. His brother was the first general killed at Bunker Hill leading troops. That was Joseph Warren. John Warren started the Medical Society of Boston that became Harvard Medical School. That was John Warren, both close friends of Washington. Beaumont and digestion I talked about. Jonathan Letterman. Uh, George Miller Sternberg, the man who started the Surgeon General's Library that became the National Library of Medicine, John Shaw Billings, major in the army. His painting, if you go into the main reading room at the National Library of Medicine, he's in a uniform on the wall. He designed Johns Hopkins Hospital and then the New York Public Library. That's John, that's John Shaw's Billings, buried in, in Arlington. And then all of the others on that coin. And we put a book together with the help of Borden, if you've not seen it, called the, the Names on the Coin. That's it. Builders of Trust. Good for you. I was going to send you guys a copy if you didn't have one. Yeah, people, people need to know that history. Right. And, and I think that's part of the War Docs project is even more recent the people that you mentioned, the Alcid Lanus, the P.K. Carltons, the Eric Schoomakers, these are names that, that people should be able to say, yeah, they did a lot for military medicine. Yeah, and, so and, think, and world and global medicine. And global medicine. And in the last couple of years, I've been working on TBI and some of those other things that I feel that we just never uh, got closure on uh, because they're so complicated and so much interspersed with things like chronic pain, which is another major concern of mine and a major focus of mine. So between TBI and pain, I, I've really kept myself pretty busy. But but in the in in, in the recent months, I, I think I've reached a point of closure on those things. We've done as much as we can in, in my lifetime. Uh, it's time for others to take over. But it's been a great privilege to stay connected as a civilian in, at the university and then to move on now temporarily to the VA to assist as well. But I look forward to a time when I don't have to be thinking about that stuff anymore. If your great-grandchildren listen to this podcast 7,500 years from now, what would you want to say to them about your military medicine Oh, gosh, I only hope that you, and I've said this to my three children, who don't think of themselves as kids anymore, the oldest is 30 and in medical school, going to deliver our first grandchild here in the next month. I've got one child who, one who's a medical student, one who's a school counselor over in Arlington, and one who's a jazz musician in New Orleans struggling. He's actually a great waiter who is trying to be a songwriter and, and music producer. 
And I would say to them what I've said to them since the moment they were born, which is find the passion that I was um, privileged to find in doing what I did in, in Army medicine. And uh, if you can find that and have that sense about yourself in those roles that you're doing exactly what you were all put together to do. And that's what I felt like. I mean, after I made the decision to stay in Army medicine and repeatedly to make that decision over and over again, I always felt I was exactly where I needed to be. And the Army had developed me exactly to be the person I needed to be at that time. I'd say to my great, great, great grandchildren, find, don't worry about the money. Don't worry about the prestige. Don't worry about what kind of car you drive or spaceship you drive at that point or how big your house is. Find the passionate, the thing that you have true passion about and everything else will fall in place for you. And I think that's what I've been able to do. We've been speaking with retired Lieutenant General, Dr. Eric Schoomaker. Sir, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us on War Docs, and thank you for your service to our nation. Yeah, thank you both. This has been really a, a great experience for me. I don't get many people asking these kinds of pointed questions of me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.